Let me preach just a, for a few moments uh, this morning out of the book of, of John. And although the book of John is the fourth gospel in the New Testament, it has the distinction of being the only gospel written about Jesus that does not follow a linear chronological timeline. See, John is distinct in the way that he writes about Jesus. Instead of a biographical story that outlines his birth, life, death, and resurrection, the book of John is written like a highlight reel that showcases the seven major miracles of the ministry of Jesus. The first miracle is in John 2, where Jesus turns water into wine. Next is in John 4, where Jesus heals the nobleman's son. In John 5, Jesus heals the man at the pool. In John 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000. Later in John 6, Jesus walks on water. In John 9, Jesus heals a man born blind. And finally, number 7, in John 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Now hear me, friend. The scriptures say that if all that Christ did was recorded, not even all the books in the world could contain it, which tells us this. If the Bible records it, it's not just for the sake of history. No, instead, these miracle stories serve as a witness to the character and the deity of God's only Son. They are signs that draw us into wonder that reveal to us the Father. Each of the seven miracles in the book of John demonstrate the fullness of Christ's divinity and facets of Christ's authority. By the time that you finish this book, you realize Jesus has authority over the spiritual. He has authority over the natural. He has authority over the cosmic. He has authority over the demonic. And he even has authority over death itself. See, the Apostle John is the second most prolific author of the New Testament, right behind the Apostle Paul. John writes the Gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, and of course, the book of Revelation. John was one of the first men to follow Jesus, and he was the last disciple to leave the cross. John was a fisherman on the Sea of Galilee who became an apostle to the churches of Asia Minor. John was just a blue-collar dude working for his dad, mending nets on his boat in the middle of the afternoon. And along came Jesus. He called John by name and he dared him to dream. John's life would be transformed. His world would be opened up. He never imagined what his yes to the invitation of Christ would lead to. But oh, what a life this fisherman named John was about to live. And here's what's interesting. People, including myself, naturally believe that the book of John was the fourth book to be written in the New Testament because of how it's positioned in our Bibles today. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But did you know that its placement in the biblical canon actually has nothing to do when it was actually written? For in fact, John writes this gospel near the end of his life. As an old man, just prior to being exiled to the island of Patmos, John writes the story of Jesus. Which means this, by the time the book of John is written, 
execution has already ended the lives of the 11 other disciples. Heresies have already crept into local congregations. Division and sin have already torn apart families. Leaders have failed. People have turned their backs. Churches have split. Buildings have been shuttered. And yet in our minds, so often, we glamorize what it must have been like to be a Christ follower in the first century. Friend, it was more difficult than you could ever imagine. And after all John has seen, after all John has experienced, after all the years John spent serving in church, after all the heartbreak, the turmoil, the trials, and the tragedy, John begins his gospel not with an explanation of Christ, not with a defense of Christ, not with an apology for Christ, not with a disclaimer, not with a trigger warning, but instead with an announcement. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, it was God. He was in the beginning with God, and through Him all things were made, and without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of all mankind. Oh, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it, and the Word became flesh, and it dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace... And full of truth. And maybe, just maybe, this announcement from John is the best picture of success that you'll ever see. After all these years, after all I've witnessed, he is still the light that shines in my darkness. He is still the life that interrupts my death. And he is still the one whose glory we behold. Hear me, friend. I am not here to defend the gospel. I'm not even here to explain the gospel. My job as a preacher is not information, but instead proclamation. I can survive the worst the world has to offer because I've seen the best that this Jesus came to bring. I can survive the worst our culture brings to the table because I've seen the best that His hand can provide. How you will survive getting hurt in church? How you will survive getting tossed and turned by the waves of life? It's when you behold His glory that you discover his glory's been the one thing holding me together this entire time. And that brings us to John 2, which records the first miracle ever credited to the public ministry of Christ. And starting in verse 1, the scriptures tell us this. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding as well. Theologians believe that by the time that Jesus does his first miracle at the age of 30, it is likely that the husband of Mary, Joseph, has already passed away. 
We're not sure about the nature of this wedding, but theologians through conjecture assume that it was likely a family wedding, that a cousin or an in-law or an aunt or, or an uncle was, was getting married, and so the family was coming together to celebrate. I can almost imagine Mary telling Jesus, now you got to show up at this wedding. And Jesus responded to her, well, if I'm going, 12 of my friends are coming with me. And they rolled deep on the wedding in Cana. See, now watch, Cana, Cana was an ancient city, just a few miles north of Nazareth. Cana was, was home to, to, to one of the disciples, a young man named Nathaniel. Cana was the town where Jesus healed the nobleman's son. And Cana was the place at the age of 30 where the ministry of Jesus would be announced to the world through the miracle of water being turned into wine. Now here's what's cool. If you were to travel to Cana today, you would see a historic church that has been constructed out of limestone, which stands, watch, on the same patch of dirt where Jesus performed his first miracle nearly 2,000 years ago. And watch this. Today, pilgrims travel from all over the world to renew their marriage vows in this historic little church. It's interesting to me, Lydie, that the Bible begins with a marriage, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. The ministry of Christ starts with a marriage at the wedding of Cana. And all of history will conclude when Christ returns and welcomes his bride to the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's a marriage in the beginning, there is a marriage in the middle, and there is a marriage celebration that we are headed to, not as the bruised bride of Christ, but as the spotless bride of Christ, where we will see him face to face. And the reason marriage is so prominent from Genesis all the way through Revelation is because marriage, watch, is a picture of the gospel. The church is the bride. Christ is the bridegroom. And there will come a day where the veil of the temporary will be lifted. We will see him as he is and we will enjoy him forever. Now, I'm going to tell you the truth this morning, and I hope you don't get offended. So if you do, just chill with me for a minute. There has never been a greater assault on the institution of marriage than we see today. And it is demonic at its very core. And the reality is this. We are governed by idiots. Before you think I'm being political, we got the spirit of dumb manifesting in both parties at the moment. We are governed by those who jump at the opportunity to celebrate sexual confusion. 
Our elected officials operate with an arrogance that leads them to believe they can mess with marriage, rearrange gender, and play God, all the while avoiding the consequences associated with their actions. In the beginning, God did not create the bureaucrats in Washington, D.C., but he did create the heavens and the earth. He did create men and women, and he did give them the command to be fruitful and multiply. And if we're not careful, here's what happens. One generation sows complacency, so the next generation reaps confusion. That generation sows confusion, so the next generation reaps bondage. That generation sows bondage, so the next generation reaps destruction. And the enemy of our souls laughs his way all the way to the bank because his chief purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. Hear me, friend. Nobody hates marriage more than the devil. And why? Because marriage is a picture of covenant and marriage is a picture of unity and marriage is a picture of covering and marriage is a testimony that speaks to trust, grace, protection, forgiveness, love, and hope. And these are all things the devil will never have so he works overtime to try and steal them from you. And if marriage is a picture of the gospel, no wonder the enemy wants to destroy yours. For he hates anything that bears the image of the Almighty. And if your marriage bears the image of the Almighty, then your marriage has the opportunity to be both your loudest and greatest testimony you ever have. I guess the only question to ask today would be this. When people look at your marriage, does it remind them of heaven or does it look like hell? Now I'm going to transition back into being nice for the rest of the sermon, but just, okay. And in John 2, at the ripe old age of 30, Jesus, his mom, and 12 of his friends show up in the city of Cana, and no one but the Father in heaven knows what's going to take place next. In verse 3, the story continues, and when they ran out of wine, (laughs) the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no more Wine. Thank you, Captain Obvious. (laughs) And and Jesus responds to her and he says, Woman, what, what does your concern have to do with me? For my hour has not yet come. Now when we read that through the vernacular of our modern day syntax, it sounds like Jesus is being crude or rude or abrasive. But that word woman was actually a term of endearment. For at the age of 30, no Jewish self-respecting young adult would refer to his mom as mom in a public setting. And so he refers to her as woman the same way that he refers to her while he hangs on the cross. And he says, woman, behold your son. And he speaks to John and he says, John, behold your mother. It was a term of endearment. It wasn't disrespectful, but he is communicating to Mary, what does that have to do with me for my time has not yet come? And I love this. So his mother says to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. (laughs) For 30 years, Mary has waited for the moment that we are reading about today. 30 years ago, an angel named Gabriel interrupted Mary's mid-afternoon 
and said to her, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the son of the highest and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. And for 30 years, Mary has labored under the shadow of a yet-to-be-fulfilled prophetic word. The most significant thing to be recorded of Jesus up until this point is that at the age of 12, his parents forget him at church. There's been no miracles. There's been no walking on water. There's been no taking five loaves and two fishes and feeding 5,000. There's been no dead men who have gotten out of their graves. There's been no demoniacs who have gotten set free. Mary has held this word in her heart wondering, will today be the day? Will this year be the year? Will this moment be that moment? I know what I heard. I can't shake what that angel told me. I know everybody thinks I'm crazy. I know they're starting to disbelieve my encounter, but I can not shake what I have been told and I'm laboring under a word that is yet to be fulfilled I don't know what Mary is thinking I'm not sure if she's been tipped off by the Holy Spirit I'm not positive what leads to the dialogue unfolding in the chapter we are reading today but after 30 long years Mary is done with the waiting there is no way Mary was going to waste the pain of being an unwed pregnant teenager there was no way she was going to waste the pain of Joseph almost divorcing her waste the pain of not being believed by her peers Waste the pain of being hunted by Herod. This is the moment, three decades in the making, where the word Mary has labored for is coming to pass. See, the wedding is out of wine. And although she doesn't blame Jesus for the lack, she makes it his problem to solve because that's what faith does. Hear me, friend. My lack is not God's fault, but it is God's problem. And he is an expert at solving problems he didn't create. For he has promised to be my supply. He has never failed me once, and he won't start now. Now hear me. The gap between the problem you face and the solution you need is a gap so wide that only something as sacred as your faith can fill it. The problem is presented. We've got no wine. The feedback is given. Not my fault and not my time. And now there is a gap. A gap between the now problem and the not yet solution. And what you decide to fill that gap with will ultimately determine whether or not your solution will ever arrive. Mary has a choice. She can fill that gap with complaining, with grumbling, with whining, with self-pity. She can write a blog about how mean Jesus and his friends are. She can leave a one-star review on the wedding venue in Cana. But instead, 
Mary decides to fill that gap with faith and expectation. And what comes out of her mouth next is more profound than we realize. Whatever he says to you, do it. Hear me, hear me. Faith is not a feeling you have. Faith is not a thought you think. Faith is not a crystal you bought on Amazon that you rub together while you manifest listening to weird music. Faith is a confession that comes from your mouth loud enough for your ears to hear it. Faith doesn't think to the mountains. Faith speaks to the mountains. Romans 10 says, confess with your mouth that God raised Jesus from the dead and you will be saved. Romans 4 says faith declares things that aren't as if they are. 2 Corinthians 4 says the evidence that we have the spirit of faith is that first we believe and then we speak. Faith doesn't care what you know. Faith cares what you confess. I think even for a lot of charismatics, we fall into theological agnosticism. Well, I believe God heals. I just can't remember the last time I ever had the faith to confess it over someone else's life. I, I believe God still does miracles, but it's, it's easier for me not to get my hopes up lest I be disappointed by the solution that is coming. And Mary in this moment demonstrates the great faith that caused all of heaven to be attracted to her obedience in the first place. Similar to what she told the angel Gabriel. Let it be unto me according to your word. Hear me friend. Your life will be filled with gap moments. Where the chasm between your problem and your solution seems unbridgeable. And if you try to fill that gap with anything less than your faith, you'll only ever be disappointed by the outcome. The next time you find yourself staring at the gap, let your faith do the talking until your God does the working. I've got faith for another service in Kirkland. I've got faith for a youth young adult pastor here at this location. I've got faith for another campus in Seattle. I've got faith for the ability to one day purchase this facility. It is impossible to please God without faith. But faith doesn't cost you anything until you dare yourself to confess something in the presence of many witnesses. Our faith, when it's confessed, places a demand on only what God can provide. I don't want to have faith in theory. I want to have faith in practice. I don't want to have breakthrough in theory. I want to have breakthrough in practice. The problem is, for so many of us, we have been educated out of our own usefulness. We have become so content to stay within the ivory tower of our own intellect, hermetically sealed by the theories that we develop about the way that God works. But where are the men and the women who still believe that the God of Elijah answers with fire that he can save a city send a prodigal back home and raise the dead I've got faith for revival in Kirkland and I'm not stopping until the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob comes through on his promise we had a gap when about 12 weeks ago we announced to, to this church that 
we had the opportunity to secure this location and we needed to raise what felt like an insurmountable amount of money. God's people responded and we received exceedingly abundantly above what we could ask, think, or imagine. It, it, people in this room probably don't even know the details that, that I'm going to share here in this moment. But, you know, when we moved into this building, we had to raise a prepayment on the lease. And so we have prepaid the lease for January, February, and March. But I'm using my faith to believe that starting April 1st, we're going to have exceedingly, abundantly, above what we could ask or think so that we don't get to April and go, oops. I guess we can't afford the vision that God's given us. Faith is always scary and it never gets easier. But it's impossible to please God without this necessary ingredient. Now hear me. The fact that the wedding ran out of wine may not sound like an emergency to you, but you've got to understand this story within the ancient context in which it was written. A Jewish wedding would last between five to seven days. These weddings were a demonstration of a family's social standing, a reflection of their reputation within the community. The opulence and the charity of these celebrations were seen as an endorsement and a blessing of the new marriage taking place. To run out of wine would have been the ultimate sign of disrespect, a slap in the face to the neighborhood, an embarrassment to the family, and a curse upon the marriage. But hear me, friend, in the Bible, wine wasn't just a drink that was enjoyed. Wine was a symbol that was used to represent the work of God's Spirit and the new covenant secured by Christ's blood. And in like manner, I wonder how many folks in this community have gotten tired of showing up to weddings without wine, attending services without the Spirit, sitting in churches without Christ, listening to worship without wind, and hearing preaching without power. If the wedding runs out of wine, and if the church operates without power, it is a disservice to a region who is desperately trying to find that which will quench their spiritual thirst. We should announce to this city that here at Pursuit Kirkland, the bar is open, the drinks are free, the wine is flowing, and it's never been a better time to get filled up on the things of God. And watch how the story continues. Nearby stood six stone water pots, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons each. And Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. This is so interesting. A few years ago in the city of Cana, right near where researchers believe this wedding would have occurred, archaeologists were digging and they uncovered large, ancient stone water pots. The kind used by Jews for ceremonial washing. Huh. The, the, the Jews believed that in order for water to remain pure, it, it had to be collected from a running river and then held within a stone pot. 
The water held within these pots could then be used for the washing of hands and, and the washing of utensils or, or the washing of any other elements whose cleaning required pure water in accordance with the Old Testament Mosaic law. These stone pots always held water. They never held anything else. That water was earmarked as pure and as ritualistically acceptable for the following of the Old Testament Mosaic law. And along comes Jesus and says, I'll take the water of your law. I'll replace it with the wine of my spirit. And it will make you more clean than the law ever dared to imagine. The wedding at this point has likely been going on for several days. The stone water pots are likely empty or nearly there. So the disciples are instructed to fill them up. And whether they knew it or not, this was the beginning of the miracle that was about to break out. Now, hear me today. Before water was turned into wine, someone had to fill the water pots. Oh, it's easy to celebrate the wine. It's a little bit harder to be in charge of filling the pots. No one gets an award for filling the water pots. The crowds don't line up to applaud the filling of the water pot. The social media platforms don't blow up over the filling of the water pot. But before water turns to wine, someone had to be faithful enough to do whatever the Lord had asked of them. And I'll be honest, even in my Christian walk, it's easy to want to fast forward through the process of obedience so you can reach the outcome of your miracle. We love celebrating the wine. We only marginally tolerate the work that goes in to the filling of the water pots. Can I tell you that what allows the wine of God's spirit to flow from this stage Sunday morning is unsung heroes whose names you might never know and they're filling the water pots in the parking lot. They're filling the water pots in the kids ministry. They're filling the water pots as they clean this building. They're filling the water pots as they run our AVLM. Can I tell you in the body of Christ we all need each other working together to help display the beauty and the brilliance of the picture that God is painting on the canvas of the east side. Now, do you know how much 30 gallons of water weighs? 250 pounds. And that's before you put it in a stone water pot. This wasn't no hydro flask you throw in your back seat on your way to 24-hour fitness for your annual workout. <laughs> All said and done, this was a 500-plus pound operation requiring five to six guys per water pot trying to wrangle this thing up a hill into the middle of a wedding party all because Mary the mother of Jesus tells the disciples in advance do whatever the Lord asks of you I'm not sure about you but this is a great analogy for what it looks like serving in church it's a little cumbersome and 
You got five or six people all helping you out at once and one guy walks too fast and the water begins to spill and, and another guy walks too slow and, and another guy shows up late because he had to hit Starbucks on the way to church and all of a sudden you're, you're kind of getting frustrated and what are we doing and this doesn't matter anyways and you're just trying to figure out how to be useful because you have a heart that is inclined with a yes to be obedient to the high call of God which is in Christ Jesus but it doesn't feel sexy, it doesn't feel cool and nobody gives you a participation ribbon for help out and watch how the story continues then he told them now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet and they did so And when the master of the banquet tasted the water that had turned into wine he did not realize where it had come from though the servants who had drawn the water out knew so then he called the bridegroom aside and he said to him, everyone brings out the choice wine first. And when the guests have well drunk, they bring out the Kirkland signature next. <laughs> but you, you have saved the best for last. Mary tells the disciples, whatever Jesus tells you to do, do it. And what are his two basic instructions? Number one, fill the water pots. And number two, draw some out. Now hear me, friend. The miracle did not materialize by virtue of the disciples filling the water pot. The miracle materialized by virtue of them drawing the water out of the stone pot and handing it to the master of the banquet. Let me challenge you today. Some of you are sitting on wine in your water pot, and you don't even know it. You're complaining about your lack, but have yet to recognize the value of what is under your seat. But how will you ever notice that your water has turned to wine until you have the courage to draw some out? Hear me, friend, your talent, your gifting, your anointing, your calling, your tithe, your creativity, it's like water sitting in a water pot. It don't ever become wine until someone takes the initiative to draw it out. <laughs> I bet the disciples feel crazy. Hear me, friend, they've never seen a miracle before. They're not like, oh, this is what Jesus always does. <laughs> Watch this, the whole party about to turn up. Oh, this is, this is his setup, the miracle's happening. They got no context for what's coming next. I can, I can just imagine their internal conversation. Uh, I, I understand why we need to refill the water pots with water. The, the wedding is, is running low on water. They got dishes to rinse and, and we're just helping out. Oh, great. Now what does he want us to do? Oh, so let me get this straight. The wedding has run out of wine and we're to blame. And so now, now we are supposed to walk up to the MC of this entire event and draw water out of this water pot and serve it to him. How's that going to solve the problem, Jesus? 
I don't understand anything. Why are we drawing water out like it's wine? It's clearly not wine. This feels fake. It feels like acting. We're going to look like idiots. I don't agree. I want a second opinion. I just want to go to a church where they never ask me to do anything that I don't want to do. And to everyone's surprise, but especially the disciples, when the master tastes that which was formerly water, he announces, this is the best stuff that we've ever had. Can I tell you, faith never feels cool when you're doing it. And it always feels fake until it works. <laughs> And sometimes like in an effort to act like we are so genuine and transparent, we say things like this. Well, I don't want to sing these songs if I don't really mean them. Well, I don't want to raise my hands if I don't really feel like it. Well, I don't want to tithe unless I have the right heart. Well, I'm not going to go to church unless I really want to be there because I don't want to fake anything because I'm just so real. I'm going to keep it real. Oh, shut up. Get married. Have kids. Grow up. You'll do a thousand things a week that you don't feel like doing. That's not called being fake. That's called being an adult. If I waited to be obedient to Christ until I felt like being obedient to Christ, I would literally never be obedient to Christ. <laughs> Because this relationship with God takes faith, which means you do a lot of things that you don't feel like doing. And pretty soon, how you feel catches up with where you're at as your spirit man dictates to your flesh, not the other way around. By the time I preach here in Kirkland, it's my third service. I'm already late. Team's going to be upset. Got to get back to Snohomish to preach a fourth service. Go home, take a quick shower, get ready to preach in Seattle for our fifth service. And by the time that we hit fifth service, I don't even feel like being born again. <laughs> and you know what I have to do? I got to sit on the front row and lift up holy hands without wrath or doubting. Are you faking it? No, I'm faithing it. I'm using my faith to pull my flesh into obedience. <clears throat> and can I tell you, by about the second song on Sunday night, I got both arms up, I'm jumping up and down, I'm glorifying Jesus, I'm lifting up a shout of praise. Why? Because by faith, I have pulled my flesh into subjection of my spirit. We're just drawing out the water. This looks dumb. We're just faking it. Of course it's not wine. Everybody knows it's water. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm going to go to the altar again and a miracle's not going to happen again. I'm not faking it anymore. No, listen, I don't want you to fake it here. This is not an appeal to just have some sort of performative spiritual experience on the outside while you're dead on the inside. But it is a call to radical allegiance and obedience to Christ. And the older you get, oftentimes the less that you feel it and the more that you have to faith it. It's not just that Christ can turn water into wine. He turns sorrow into joy. 
He turns common into sacred. He turns night into day. When my wife shared her testimony of overcoming sexual abuse last Sunday night, it was the water of her trauma being turned into the wine of her testimony. I'm telling you, it's time to make a withdrawal on the water that's inside of your water pots. Because I'm convinced that when we obey, God takes the foolish things of the world and uses it to confound the wise. Let me end here. I love the prophetic statement of the master of the ceremonies to the disciples who have gathered the water pots. Normally, we get the best stuff at first. And I don't understand why you've constructed it in the way that you have. But, but, but you, you have saved the best for last. I'm so grateful in, in honoring of what God has done specifically in this church over the last many decades, but more broadly in this region. Through people who I consider heroes of the faith, some who have passed on to glory. I'm so thankful for what they have laid down in pursuit of the high call of God. The voices who cried out in the desert believing for a cloud the size of a man's hand to begin to rain. We are here today standing on the shoulders of people who have labored, who have come before us. We are reaping from vineyards that we did not plant. Hear me, hear me. I am so thankful for the legacy of spiritual heroes on the east side. But with that being said, I am more convinced than I've ever been before that the best wine has yet to be drunk. The best churches have yet to be started. The best move of God's spirit has yet to be experienced. And you're sitting in the right church Worshiping the right God here at the right time to see him do his best work in and through your life. This God always saves his best for last. Come on, would you stand as we close this morning?